We are going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's uh, tucked in right behind Colossians, written by Paul. And uh, I was thinking about that last song uh, and thinking about Paul singing, Your goodness is running after me. If you know anything about Paul's story, I think he, that would have hit pretty, uh, pretty hard. So 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, just a reminder, as Chris mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, this was a, probably, probably the first letter chronologically written here in the New Testament, and um, this is written to a, a completely new church, emerging church, uh, newly planted and lots of new Christians. So just keep that in mind as we read uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter. The context here is how to live a life pleasing to God. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, according to the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That is the word of the Lord. So... I love stories. I'm passionate about a great story. Uh, long stories, short stories, uh, stories in books, movies, reels, doesn't matter. I just love the power of words paired with music or images uh, uh, that move. It's, it's fantastic. Any story that unlocks the new or shifts perspective or moves me to laughter or tears, I just love. And I love personal stories, too, personal histories. Uh, like, I love great questions, like, where did you grow up? Or, have you ever been in a car accident? I love to hear the stories that uh, unveil in the life that you've led. And, in fact, 
just a couple of the stories I've been thinking about from people who are actually in this room. Uh, uh, I've been thinking about the mountains climbed and the near escapes. I've been thinking about uh, the, the, the launching your first business or getting made redundant, uh, meeting royalty, uh, being royally upset. Uh, from Croydon to Kuala Lumpur, from South Ken to Sierra Leone, you, you, you are full of these incredible stories. And I think their stories are very powerful. Uh, they reveal the context and the humanity and the beauty and the divine uh, through, through narrative. In, in fact, they're so powerful that they become a kind, kind of defining characteristic of, of who we are and how we see the world. The stories frame our worldview. For example, our families might have certain stories that we tell again and again that kind of remind us who we are. Or our group of friends, you know, you have that go-to narratives about where you first met or uh, that one weekend away, and they become kind of what bonds you and holds you together. And that extends beyond that to, to our culture. And our very culture has uh, stories that we tell, stories that we inhabit, uh, that we live out. And these stories are our kind of defining narratives of what it means to be here and to exist. Even in this introduction, we start to have narratives around what it means to support a certain team or live one part of the river, side of the river. And these become little micro-narratives that extend further and further. And because we live in culture, much like a fish swims in water, uh, these stories can sometimes uh, be hard to see when we're in them, but they, they're kind of like the guide rails or the boundaries that we exist in. They become the markings in the sand or the barriers that, that keep us uh, in, in, in a space and in line. And that was the same 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica, uh, who Paul is writing to. So again, a bunch of recent converts, and they're living in this particular place in this particular time, and they were living out stories that existed in their culture. They were living within a context, within a worldview uh, that, that they were adhering to. And so Paul's letter to them is trying to establish the Christian way within that context, trying to help them to understand how the Christian way uh, reacts and, uh, and engages with the cultural narratives that they have. And in this particular long passage that I just read out, there are three of these kind of worldviews or cultural stories that Paul is addressing and responding to. So before we go into those three uh, different kind of topics, I just want to reframe this again. So Paul is asking this emerging church, how can we walk in honor and holiness? How can we live a life pleasing to God? And how can we do that more and more? So what are these three topics that we just read? Uh, I've just written down here uh, sex, work, and death. So uh, no small topics here today. How can we live a life pleasing to God in the areas of your <laughs> in sex, work, and death? So we've got about 20 minutes. We're going to go through these three, and it's going to be fun. So uh, gear up. So sex is its own topic, right? It's, it's near the top of the list for every generation of interest since the beginning. Uh, we have three teenagers, so all their ears are perking up right now. Uh, that goes for work too, right? Work is how we spend our time. That's how we engage in the world. And honestly, it demands a weekend away, a dedicated seminar. Uh, you know, it's so important. It's so fundamental to who we are as, as people. And finally, death. 
not a lot of experience myself, but the inevitable, the unknown, when we meet the Creator God face to face. So, <laughs> I would like to suggest today that Paul is inviting this church in Thessalonica, just like he is inviting us today, to establish a Christian practice that is fully integrated, fully integrated with real life, totally practical. A Christian practice that is completely and fully engaged with the contemporary culture and completely relevant. And a Christian practice that is radically different from those around, truly holy. And that holistic holiness is, is really uh, extraordinary. Uh, it's our whole body, it's our whole life, it's our whole community, even to the very end. So should we get started? So, what does our culture say about sex? What do we say about the role of sex in human relationships? And what are the stories that we watch and listen to and share that guide our kind of thinking in those areas? What is the prevailing narrative about what is sex and why does it matter? In this passage uh, from, from, from the second verse, uh, we see Paul establishing the will of God as a matter of controlling our bodies in holiness and honor, abstaining from sexual immorality. So the sexual immorality, the word here in Greek is porneia, and that includes a whole host of things, adultery, all the way through to sex outside of marriage. So not just responding to how we feel, this, this passionate lust uh, that he writes about, but living with self-control. That's totally radical. In fact, I've been sweating for weeks now because uh, it was radical in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. It's super radical still today. Uh, it's almost unbelievable, really, to stand here. Uh, I'm very conscious of the camera right now and say that Christians believe this radical thing. And if it does sound super weird to you, I, I really, I hear you. It's just not how we think about sex today. Uh, it's definitely not how they thought about it in Thessalonica then either. Uh, that was a fully patriarchal society. Men had multiple partners and women had little, if any, agency. And that felt like a really demanding code, a revolutionary stance. And I, I would say our cultures and societies in all those 2,000 years since have, have struggled to have a really clear point of view, I think, on sex, a holistic view, uh, balancing uh, freedom on the one hand and purity on the other. Uh, equality on the one hand, but safety on the other as well. And we in the church, we have not done this well either in those 2,000 years. You know, we, we have struggled to balance freedom and judgment, uh, purity and the puritanical. And uh, as Martin has often mentioned, there are kind of three aspects to this conversation of, of sexuality. There's the theological and the pastoral, and also the political. And even at the very moment, uh, the General Synod, the Church of England's General Synod, is debating the very nature of marriage and uh, the Bible's guidance for sexual relationships, you know, having earnest debate. And I also want to acknowledge uh, I'm, I'm a middle-aged white man, you know, married to a wife with three children. I'm also seeing the world through my story, through my perspective, right? And that that's that, that's all I can do. That is, that is where I am. That's what I stand here to do. So what am I asking? What am I encouraging you to think about? I, I'm asking you to 
understand for yourself what living a life pleasing to God really means in this area. I, I, I encourage you to look at what Paul says and then to look at Jesus' model. And personally, as I have wrestled with Paul's words and looking at Jesus' way, as I have looked at the stories that I inhabit and that I believe and that I in, engage with or even take for granted, I have tried to understand what it means to live a life pleasing to God. And I have come to quite a clear conclusion that most of the time, I'm living to please myself. The Christian view of human relationships is that they are completely whole, fully integrated parts of our lives. We believe that our body is fully connected with our mind and our soul. We can't really separate those two things. So just like we probably wouldn't say I love you on a first date or try to get a mortgage the second time we meet, we wouldn't give away some of those other really intimate parts of ourselves either before committing wholly to one another. And sex is this powerful and mysterious thing. It's wholly entwined in so many aspects of us and how we see the world. But Paul is making it clear here that total intimacy comes with total commitment, spiritually, socially, economically, as well as physically. We are to control our own bodies in holiness and honor, not just for us and for our pleasure, but for others as well. And that's what life living, uh, life, living a life pleasing to God looks like, just like Jesus modeled. So that was sex. Should we do work? Uh, what, what then do we say about work? Uh, what are the presiding cultural narratives about what it means to, to work? And what is work and what is its place in our lives? So from verse 10, uh, interestingly, before going into this, the first thing that Paul says is, a, a, he starts with an encouragement. He says, love each other more and more. You see, it seems in Thessalonica at that time uh, that some, as, as people had become Christians and kind of uh, uh, joined the church and the church community, they had sort of started to retreat into that community, uh, abandoning gainful employment. Paul mentions this a lot in, in these letters. And were supported by the charity of some of the wealthier Christians in, in the church family. Before I go any further, I really want to clarify and emphasize this is not about those of us who can't work this is not about supporting, not supporting each other in community. This is not about support and help through the church family, not at all. In fact, if you look throughout the New Testament, uh, you know, we see a model in the church of, of complete and utter unreasonable hospitality, a kind of reliance and, 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 and on that generosity within the community, uh, sharing financial support, uh, every kind of support. So that, that is the context here. But it seems that in Thessalonica, that might have gone just maybe a step too far, and uh, that maybe it was tipping into a kind of over-reliance on generosity and, and separating from the wider community and just retreating into uh, the church community. Timothy Keller wrote that, if we believe we are saved by the purity and righteousness of our lives, then we are encouraged to stay within the confines of the church. So if we are saved by purity rather than grace, if we are saved by what we do rather than what he did, we kind of need to retreat, kind of need to put up walls. We need to separate ourselves from the world. Uh, we need to put up barriers, flee. We, we might live in the world a little bit and then retreat quickly into the safety of, of, of Sunday. 
or we might even long to escape the city. We might escape to avoid the other. We might move into like-minded communities where it's, uh, it's okay just to, to live separate from all the danger. But here we see Paul saying something very different. The Christian way is fundamentally different. That in this way, work is an act of love. And when we use our strengths and our gifts to serve people, we are following Christ's model. So in verse 11, it, it talks about to live quietly, and that means not meddling in others' affairs. That, that means being fully engaged in serving and leading and innovating. And uh, to work with our hands here uh, means to employ your gifts and your strengths and efforts in the service of others. That, that's a fundamentally, uh, it's, it's a radical, again, radical view of what it means to work and to serve uh, in community. And throughout the letter, we see Paul passionately advocating for the church members to work in order to walk properly, to be more integrated into society. Uh, not a burden in society, not difficult in society, but to support and to grow and to develop. Uh, just imagine what, what that could mean, uh, to love more and more by being... <laughs> That expression of that love is to be in the place where God has placed you with your particular gifts, with your particular strengths, uh, diligently, authentically, passionately serving where you are and what you're doing. I, I, what kind of renewal would be possible if we really lived that out in our day-to-day? -day? Uh, London is a great city, and again, to quote Keller, la last one, he called cities culture-forming incubators culture-forming incubators. So the very stories that we're talking about, the very uh, narratives uh, that, that I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm expressing, these worldviews, they're shaped here in London, in, in these places. That's where culture is fashioned and formulated and, and, and then carried beyond our borders. So where then should we be? How do we use our voice to fight for what's right, to be here in the space, supporting healthy growth, cleaning up, building up? Um, I tried to get some alliteration, but I was thinking about finance to, to, to fashion, uh, manufacturing to medicine. I was just trying to think about who's here and what you're involved in, arts to agriculture, uh, banking to building. We, we, we are in all of those spheres. And if we fully serve, fully serve, wholly integrate into those spaces, uh, what then, uh, what a life pleasing to God that would be until we die, until the day we die. Sorry, I can't turn this page. I'm more nervous than I appear. So what, what, uh, what does our culture say about the end? What does it say about how we die? What is the defining narratives on pain and suffering and the great beyond? Because here, despite themselves, despite this new hope uh, that the church in Thessalonica had, had come to, uh, it seems that they were a little worried. It seems that some of their friends and family had died, perhaps suddenly. And they didn't know if those lost ones were actually okay, that they were actually in glory. And they didn't know, really, they didn't know if it was all going to be okay. And Paul, from verse 13, is encouraging them very lovingly and very passionately, almost floridly, saying, it's okay to grieve, but it's not okay to grieve like you have no hope. The fact is, death is an extraordinary rupture. Uh, here in the West, we, we, we don't see a lot of it, do we? It often hides it away. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not very visible to us. But for those of you who have narrowly dodged it, 
or carried a dear one to the very door itself. You know the violence of, of death. Uh, for those who, of us who have lost in sudden or extraordinary circumstances, you know that hollowness, that, that overwhelming grief, that almost uh, like a wave that just uh, takes you. And like Jesus, many of you have stood right in front of that tomb and wept. Un unlike Jesus, you haven't gone in and pulled Lazarus out. Um, but here we see Paul encouraging us that the dead are already where we will someday be, with him. They're ahead of us. And for those already fallen asleep, I love this phrase so much, they are already in his loving hands. Uh, we have hope, a greater hope, because we believe the great God himself humbled himself and died and rose again, paying the cost for us so that we may live life fully to the full here and forever. And if we trust Jesus, we must trust him with those already gone and encourage one another. So then, how then do we live a life pleasing to God? You see, that whole life fully integrated, all in view of a walk pleasing to God, doesn't stop at lust. It's a total commitment to purity, just like Jesus modeled. And that whole life integrated, all in walk that is pleasing to God uh, doesn't just stay in the church. It is lovingly and diligently at play in our work and how we spend our time, just like it was for Jesus. And that whole life integrated all in walk that is pleasing to God doesn't stop at death. Death is swallowed up in victory, and we take comfort in the fact that it carries on and on and on in relationship with him through Jesus' sacrifice, our great hope. Um, how do you live a life pleasing to God? Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way, I'm going to read. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. Christ himself sometimes describes the Christian way as very hard and sometimes as very easy. He says, take up your cross. In other words, it is like going to be beaten to death in a concentration camp. And the next minute he says, my yoke is light. He means both. Um, my wife's father explained this uh, harder and easier way like this. So if we are to live a life pleasing to God, imagine the straight and narrow. You're walking the straight and narrow path that is pleasing to God. Uh, you're keeping to the straight and narrow way, trying to stay righteous. And that's pretty treacherous, actually, isn't it? Walking along this path. If you make a mistake, it's pretty easy to stumble and roll and fall and disappear. And it's easy to feel afraid as you walk along a path like this. Staying pure, staying, staying, staying this path. But with grace and with Jesus, it goes completely the other way around. So we are to walk the straight and narrow, but we walk it in this protection of grace. Uh, we, it all gets turned around because when you stumble and fall, Guess who's there to grab you as you walk on the choppy seas? Guess who's in the boat with, with us uh, and, and, and tells us not to be afraid? Who chases after the one sheep that is lost? Chases and brings them back to the road and guides us on our path. And that is the story of a fully integrated life. Harder and easier within this culture, within this story. 
to both commit completely to the narrow path and to know that it's not about us, to do both at the same time. As Paul says here in this letter, this is, this is how we ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, but to do so more and more. As I invite Ben uh, and the band back, um, just lo- lo- love to pray, pray this over us. Let's pray. Lord, as, uh, as, uh, as I've prepared this talk, Lord, I have fallen so short of this purity and this holiness that you call us to. And um, I just thank you, Lord, that it's not about us. And as we seek, Lord, to better walk in a way that is pleasing to you, I, I pray that we would be more aware of the stories that we inhabit, the stories and the culture and the lens that we see things through, and Lord, that we would be able to see your way through that, Um, and that we would be able to understand that radical grace, uh, even to the very death, breaking death that you did, Lord. I pray that uh, we would uh, stand stand and worship um, this incredible gift that you have given us, Lord, and revel in your greater story. now in this moment and forever. In your name.